Hello everyone and welcome to Singularity One-on-One. Singularity One-on-One is a regular feature of singularityweblog.com where you can go and download it or listen to it in full. Today my guest on the show is Rob Spence. Rob Spence is a director and producer in Toronto, Canada, whose work has appeared on Discovery, Vision, Space TV and the CBC, for which he has made the controversial documentary Let's All Head Toronto. Currently, Rob is in development on a documentary about how video and humanity intersect, and especially with regards to surveillance. That is where his iBark project comes into it. And I would jump straight into the questions so that uh, we can get Rob to share a little bit with us about um, his project and how he got into the whole idea of placing a video camera inside of his prosthetic eye. So welcome, Rob. Welcome to our show today. Happy to be here. Excellent. So would you mind sharing with us um, how you uh, got the idea of placing a camera inside of your prosthetic eye? Yeah, it's actually, um, it's very, very common for people who have lost their eye to consider putting a video camera in there. It's not a unique uh, idea. It's pretty much anybody from grandmothers to little kids who lose their <laughs> eye. It's just something that the idea is out there in, in science fiction pop culture, uh, especially, you know, the bionic man. Um, it's not a new idea. And it's something that when you, it's almost like if you lost your hand, would you consider getting a really powerful mechanical hand? Uh, it's just that n- nobody's really done the camera before. In my case, I just started making calls to a lot of engineers and, and we did it. Well, and, but then the, the whole question comes, why do it? I mean, yes, people do consider uh, replacing it with, if they lose a hand, as you said, for example, yeah. replacing it with a more powerful hand. But on the other hand, there's a very strong anthropomorphic tendency for yeah. people to want to get the same hand that looks the same, that feels the same, ideally the same yeah. hand and not usually I think not a better one. I think that the case where yeah. they go for better parts is the the more rare case rather than the more popular one. Yeah. Isn't that the case? I would disagree actually. I think that that used to be more the case, <laughs> but um, these days it's it's okay increasingly to be different. You know, whether it's, uh, you know, just just being a nerd is cooler now than it used to be. Just that, that concept alone or, or being gay or being uh, uh, some kind of cyborg. These are all things that used, used to be kind of, oh, you should try as harder to be normal. But I think if you talk to most people now who've lost a hand, they're, yeah, sure, maybe they want a hand for a dinner party where they're going to be not noticed, but mm-hmm. I would suggest most of them want also a really cool, strong robot hand that doesn't look anything at all uh, like that. In fact, there's an expression from a lot of the guys coming back from Afghanistan and Iraq who are missing limbs mm-hmm. uh, that they came up with is pimp my gimp. <laughs> and so if you think about the philosophy of this, it's a guy coming back from the Korean War would be more like the way you suggested yeah. They want to go to a dinner party, have a long pant, uh, a big boot, and try not to limp. So it looks as if 
they're as normal as possible. Whereas the guys now, they have uh, the Pentagon has put a lot of money into an incredibly powerful, cool legs with shocks and metal bits, and Made they put on shorts, go play soccer, and they're like, check out my weird, weird, cool leg. Look how powerful it is. Yeah, and some of those limbs are latest uh, products of technology. They're made of advanced materials such as carbon yeah. fiber, titanium. That's they right. have artificial intelligence of the way they function. Uh-huh. Very and people are actually side. taking pride in that and showing it off rather than... And, and I guess in my case, too, uh, the other factor is I'm a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. I make documentary films, so it's, it's, it's kind of a natural thing for me to want to push film language a bit farther uh, you know, film language and, and the kind of, I mean, I make point of view documentaries. What could be more appropriate than having a camera? Okay. So let's take it to your own specific case. So is it correct to say that the motivation for you, uh, placing uh, a camera in your prosthetic eye is to document or to make documentary films, as you said, and how is that, you know, accepted or embraced by by the people on the other end of the camera right well um <clears throat> yes i would say i mean I, I made the eye to make documentary films but this this is a part of my body there's more to it than my job it's it's me so um i've read a lot of comic books i've seen every single star trek i mean even if i wasn't going to ever make any films it's just kind of cool. So instead of being a guy missing an eye, which is kind of depressing, now I'm a guy who I also have a, a, a laser pointer eye uh, <laughs> that we're just about done. I mean, this is me living out my comic book teenage fantasy. And even if I never made a film, like, I don't care. It's cool to have a robot eye of, of various descriptions. Um, but, but the reactions have been generally of two kinds. One is that's really cool and that's really creepy. Which one is the more popular one in your view? I'd say it's, it's both. It's generally both. I mean, with, with tech guys, um, you know, that watch Star Trek, mm-hmm. they, they initially say, for example, whoa, that is so cool. But then they think about it. It's almost like in two parts. Then they go, yeah, but that's kind of creepy. <laughs> and um, uh, uh, I think it's also because the part of the body that I've changed into uh, uh, technology, it's, it's supposed to be the window to the soul. Absolutely. Not the window to YouTube or, or Ustream or, mm-hmm. uh, or into my documentary. So it feels like um, it feels like a bit of a betrayal of of eye contact, which is the the way that you connect with human beings. Um, even with Skype, there's there's some kind of approximation of, of eye contact that makes it a more human medium. So it, it it feels like a bit of a betrayal for that reason. But I mean. When I go around doing talks, uh, I've done a lot of talks around the world at different weird conferences, and uh, pretty much everybody has a small, discreet video camera now. Um, so the opportunity for you, what the fear is, is this. People aren't scared of 
surveillance cameras like from 1984. Mm-hmm. They're concerned that, you know, do we really need this many cameras and stuff? But what really frightens people is their friend recording them having a few drinks, saying stuff that they don't want on the internet, like some kind of racist joke or, yeah. or something stupid about somebody else or, or telling an embarrassing story that they think is private and then that going to YouTube. That's what people are really frightened of. So you've mentioned that most people do carry around small cameras nowadays everywhere they go with them. For example, in their cell phones. Exactly, yeah, like the iPhone and so on. So how is your camera going to be different than those, or is it? And how is your film and your movie going to be different than a movie shot from, a, from an iPhone, for example? It, it won't really. Um, but that's, that's what's interesting about the criticisms of me and... and Like everyone has a small discrete video camera. It's it's mostly it's not really the the technical part of it, although there are unique parts. There's blinking, there's glancing around because a false eye moves now with your other eye. Um but it's it's kind of the same. Um it's just that mine is taps into all these ideas about, you know, singularity, about the future, about pop culture. Uh, Star Trek. Um, it's also like replacing a part of, of your body that's so human. It's mostly the, the idea of it rather than the execution that's interesting. Mm-hmm. However, when I do film things, it's a very unique film language, <clears throat> starting with, do you know in Star Wars when Princess Leia is like, Obi-Wan, you're our only hope? Yeah. Yeah. And it's a hologram. From R2D2, yeah, the hologram. Yeah. And it wiggles. Skywalker. It gets a little bit of interference. Fuzzy. There's actually analog signal. So I get, and that, that aesthetic has become synonymous with uh, the future or movies about the future. So whether it be Terminator mm-hmm. or, uh, or some crappy B film about the future when there's all, all surveillance droning around. That um, look is very Terminator, Star Wars, whatever. And, and that's the kind of video signal that I get. So starting with that, that taps into all these ideas. Then my eye glances around and blinks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in terms of film language, we have already become used to the crappy handheld film language. Yeah. which used to be considered totally unprofessional and a big mistake. And you would never, ever do that. Yeah. You always put stuff on a tripod or a steady cam. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're not making a good film. But then we had everybody with their own devices. We had soccer moms with their cameras. We had Blair Witch Project. Uh, if you were to show Blair Witch Project to somebody 40 years ago, they'd say that is unwatchable. Uh, it's a big mistake. That's not filmmaking. That's not the way filmmaking should be. Um, and then I'm going to go a little step further, and there's going to be blinking and glancing around. Mm-hmm. So we went from the camera on a tripod, which is approximating the eye of God, moving around carefully, perfectly like a spirit. Yeah. Then we went to a little bit closer to the human experience, What do humans see through these devices they hold, like in Blair Witch Project? And they don't hold it perfectly like an eye of God. They hold it like a human being. 
to the next stage, which is my, my actual I. Mm-hmm. And this is the way we look at the world. So in other art forms like acting, you could say acting used to be on a tripod many years ago. Philip, what are you doing? Nothing, John. You know, nobody <laughs> talks like that. Uh, but then Marlon Brando came along and people started overlapping each other's dialogue. They sounded more like we sound in everyday life. Um, and painting and, and uh, writing. Writing all used to be more from, from a eye of God point of view, then it became stream of consciousness writing, the way that we actually think in our heads. So for me, uh, just artistically, that, that's the big difference anyways between, between shooting with this and shooting with my eye. So in a way, you're bringing a new uh, level of realism and, and sort of a new aesthetics of the imperfect right. but realistic yeah. point view. Exactly. With, together with the, the, eye, the, the eye lashing and like everything. Yeah. And you know, I, I get a lot of, there's a lot of people that say I should make software to eliminate the blinking and try oh, not to blinking, my yeah, eyes right. so much. But that's like some guy telling uh, an actor who is speaking more like the way we speak. He's like, you know, you're speaking too much like the way we actually speak. You should speak more like Shakespeare actors because that's the way you're supposed to act as opposed to the images I'm getting are a combination of uh, 1970s, 1980s wiggly video mm-hmm. effect and the way that we actually look at the world. Interestingly enough, uh, big uh, Hollywood blockbusters have at least some elements of those and I, I can think of two movies off the top of my head here. One of them is the, the Jason Bourne uh, movies, the, tri- the trilogy uh, yeah. with Matt Damon, where the director quite often has super shaky first point of view camera shots. And the other right. one, which sort of reminds me of the Philip K. Dick 1960s and 70s, is, of course, the Matrix trilogy with their archaic monitors and sort of like yeah. fuzzy pictures yeah. combined with you know, super advanced artificial intelligence technologies right. at the same time. So, yeah, we, we just covered your sort of philosophy of aesthetics and the new realism that you'll be bringing, but what about the ideas behind the actual movie? Is there anything new there? <clears throat> well, the first thing I would What's say is I don't, I don't too? have... People often think, you built the eye to make this one documentary. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, I built the eye because... It's like a different kind of camera. So it's like, it's almost as if I invented a steady cam. They go, what's the one movie that you made that steady cam to do? And I'm like, well, I'm going to shoot lots of different things. Mm-hmm. Um, the truth is that when you're pitching films, uh, you have to have, you know, five or six different films you're pitching. Otherwise, you're putting all your eggs in one basket. But the, the themes, and, and if you pitch to Discovery, channel that's a different film than with the national film board which is more of an artistic auteur thing but there are some common themes in all these pitches i have uh one of them is is the film aesthetic thing i was talking about Mm -hmm. um another one is concerns people have about surveillance which i was talking about briefly um you know are we afraid of of privacy here or are we are we more afraid of of people doing this to us 
you yeah. know, when we're drunk at the office party and putting it on YouTube, which, which is scarier. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of power dynamics with video, like uh, the guy at the airport, a uh, Polish fellow who was tased to death. The video of that, those cops doing that didn't come from the airport security cameras. No one's ever seen that footage. The footage that people saw was from a guy's cell phone. Absolutely. And, but that doesn't mean that all people with cell phones are good guys. A lot of them are, are using it to do upskirt videos or mm-hmm. to, uh, to try to catch somebody in an embarrassing situation. Or those kids that, that videotaped, uh, they got control of a kid's webcam and, and made fun of him for being gay and having a friend over at the room, and he ended up killing himself. So it's just, it's just information. And uh, I do think, though, when people have their own video version of the world, it gives them access to information and power that they wouldn't otherwise have. Uh, so there's, there's surveillance, but there's... So there's film language, surveillance issues, which are many, um, but also the earlier idea, I was talking about Pimp My Gimp. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is one film pitch I'm doing that involves me uh, meeting people like myself. Uh, for example, there's a, there's a very uh, uh, cool fellow in Finland, Jerry, uh, I forget his last name, who, who lost his finger. So he replaced it with a USB uh, key and you know I want to go out with this guy for example and shoot a scene where he takes off his USB finger but I give him a microphone finger so I've got a camera eye and he's the sound guy with his microphone finger that's brilliant and so when you shoot a scene like that first of all it's kind of funny which is my style um, is his sound going to be any different than somebody holding a microphone no but the fact that he's got a finger microphone and I've got a camera eye, that's, that's entertainment. Uh, but it also makes you think about the body and, and the way things are changing and technology and, and hell, the singularity. So following the Pimp My Gimp line here, how far are you willing to take this? I mean, assuming that technology advances the way it does, in, in, say, four or five or ten years, at some point, soon enough, there would be much more powerful, much more sophisticated and advanced prosthetic eyes with, say, X-ray yeah. vision, Superman vision, uh, ultraviolet yeah. vision, you name it. Yeah. Would you want to have and would you use one of those when it comes? And how far are you willing to take this? Well, um, yeah, I mean, I'm willing to take it, uh, you know, as as far as it can go, I mean, unlike you puny humans, <laughs> I can uh, upgrade my eye, and why wouldn't I? Um, what I'm not willing to do, I guess, is is invasive surgery, um, or something like that. But I basically have a space that I can keep working with, and and I think people who have lost parts of their body, there's nothing there anymore. So to just attach increasingly high-tech equipment, why not? Okay, Um, let me ask you this then. If there comes a point in which your prosthetic eye is many times better than your real eye, would you want to replace your real eye with a super-advanced prosthetic eye? 
No, um, because, I mean, even the Bionic Man, right, from the $6 million man show, mm-hmm. he kept one human eye, and then the other eye he could just access for super high-tech stuff. Um, but, you know, I don't, think, I don't think that's the way things are going to go. If, if anything, um, you know, it's going to be, it's not going to be bits and pieces of, of technology. It's going to be bioengineering. Oh, you think so? Cell, cell regeneration or or DNA manipulation or something like that. I was interviewing Kevin Warwick here a few weeks ago or maybe a couple of months ago, and he thinks that it may go the way of the cyborgization of the human body. I mean, he was the one who underwent a bunch of surgeries to do a bunch of right. different kinds of experiments, such as yeah. hooking up his nervous system to the Internet and then to his wife across the ocean and sort of telegraphically uh, communicating with his wife over the internet and stuff like that, right? And turning yeah. on and off a light yeah. bulb with uh, his hand moving yeah. up a robotic hand and all kinds of things like that. So you don't think that's that's right. one potential for our future? And you I don't think see there's going to be some forerunner of that. of that tendency. Yeah, I definitely think there's going to be some of that. But um, like, let's say for example, you are paralyzed. Mm-hmm. You could get an Iron Man suit, or you could use stem cells to rebuild your spine. Or um, you can create a total new spine from super advanced technologies, which is not as fragile as the one that you lost. Right. I, which one would be safer? I mean... Yeah, it's, I think that, you know, we're, we're still a ways off from you know, becoming like the Borg. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that we're, there's a lot of history to us being fleshy creatures and, you know, uh, you know, we like to have sex with soft parts and, you know, fleshy bits still. It's not quite there yet where, um, although some people do fetishize the whole <laughs> uh, bionic bits. I think it's going to be both, but in general, I think that the post-human is going to be more bioengineered, like with a greater lung capacity mm-hmm. and all this stuff, not through iron lungs, but through, through bioengineering, as I'm saying, where you, you increase your cell capacity. It's almost like ster- steroids or stuff like that. Yeah, I see. Uh, um, for the near future, yeah. Let, let me ask you this then. Uh, what about the Iborg name, the Iborg alias? How did you come up with that? And was it original or did you adopt it from somewhere? Um, it's just one of those words that's kicking around. Um, did you call yourself the Iborg or somebody else did first? Uh, some people were calling me that. A lot of people were calling me different things, but a few people called me Iborg and... Um, Eventually, like, yeah, I, I had to call myself that in an official marketing way. But, you know, I started a website called iBorg Project. So mm-hmm. so essentially it was me, but it, it's a word. I mean, cyborg, I, um, it's used to describe uh, various people that have been, you know, wearing cameras and their glasses and stuff like this. So. 
I see. Uh, yeah. Just as a as a funny side note, I actually just watched a, a I think it's a movie made for TV uh, called The Eyeborgs. Have you seen it by any yeah. chance? <laughs> so I what have. What do you think I... of that? It it represents basically uh, what's called an Odin optical defense intelligence network, uh, yeah. consisting of a number of robotized cameras or webcams connected in that yeah. network that are basically taking over the world and running humanity. Yeah. yeah. What do you think of that? No, I know that? those guys. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, they were very concerned at one point that um, I was going to ruin their film by diluting their brand. Uh, I, had, uh, I had never heard of their film um, but they had heard of me because I'm really good at getting press. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we worked out, I was like, look, you know, instead of giving me a hard time, why don't you let me advertise your film? So I put their trailer on my webpage. I see. Uh, this first thing you'd see, uh, when you went to my website for a long time was their trailer. They ended up getting more press, uh, for their film through me, even if there was, I think it just annoyed them that they'd say, hey, we've got this great film called Iborgs. So they go, oh, are you the Canadian filmmaker from Canada that, you know, with the eye? And they're like, no, no, it's our film that they, and they, to be fair, they had been working on it, um, obviously, before I started getting a lot of press, but um, it all worked out in the end. And it, it's funny, they're actually very similar themes, I guess. In their own in their own way, um, you know, they're doing a dark film about the, the the possibilities of surveillance and robots and artificial intelligence, and it's it's kind of the same theme with all this science fiction stuff. It's there's a future where we lose our privacy uh, and the robots take over and Skynet comes and it's all going to be very scary. Yeah, that's that's basically the the singularity scenario gone bad. Uh, yeah, how? Like first of all, let me ask you this: Do you believe in the singularity as a potential future of ours, or one of the many potential scenarios for our future? Yeah, I mean, I think there's more than one version of of the singularity, but um, I do think that there's a lot of guys out there who have this number. Uh, you know, what is it, 40 years from now? The Some say 2029, some say the mid-2040s, right. 2050s. That, yeah, and so the idea being that <clears throat> computers will be intelligent enough at that point to consistently repair the body enough so that more or less we might become immortal every time your, your cells age or have a problem the computer will figure out a way to reverse the aging or, or something like this. That seems a little convenient to me because most of the guys pitching that idea, it'd be right before they would die. <laughs> so of course, you know, it's kind of convenient that that's the time when, um, you know, cause people don't want to die. So well, there's two issues here. One of them is the time frame issue. Absolutely. Yeah. But the other issue is just the, the plausibility of that, that potential outcome right so if we put away the timeline right right you think that's a possible outcome i mean imagine yourself 40 or 50 years ago and 
yeah. telling people that you can replace your eye with a camera. Like people would say right. that's absolutely impossible, right? Maybe well, I guess not what, 50 what years ago, you, 100. Yeah. Right? I mean, of, of course I think that, I mean, even now you could say we're, we're post-human. Like when you compare us to, like one of the one of the the criteria for being a cyborg, according to some people, is is clothing, because it's technology that is significantly altered mm-hmm. the naked human animal. People go, well, clothing's not, you know. So what what is the benchmark test for when we're from human to post-human? What I do agree with is that it's accelerating. So, but just because it's happening faster doesn't mean there's this one specific cutoff point that now the singularity has arrived. You know, and we, we do have artificial intelligence now. Well, I guess what is the, the real question? Is the question that are computers going to sort of one day become self-aware uh, and, and that's the benchmark or, or there's going to be human beings will have reached a point where they're, they're that much different now? Uh, you know, what, what is the test that, that says, is it possible? Well, well, the idea, as far as I understand it, is, for example, the test could be some derivative of the Turing test in which, you know, an independent uh, group of people is confused uh, by a computer or is deceived deliberately by a computer and they take him for a, for a human being. And if that is the case, then the argument goes that they are intelligent or as intelligent as us and as right. self-aware and as smart as we are. Right. And from then on, when you extrapolate things like Moore's Law and accelerated you know, uh, speed and development of processing power, then a few right. years after that, they would once they catch up with us, they would be a few years after many, many times smarter than us because obviously technology advances much faster than biological evolution. And eventually, say, in 10 or 20 years, they'll be a, a billion times smarter than us, and then the question is, what happens to us then? I mean, who is the idiot? I mean, if, right. if they're smarter by a factor of a billion as opposed to a human, even the smartest human, then what? Right. The Cylons. Well, I will tell you this. My bank machine humiliated me last week. <laughs> so... <laughs> So it may be um, yeah. happening. <laughs> so I do think it's possible. Yeah, of course. The question is, what will that intelligence be? Um, will, it, will it actually? And then it's, I think what's interesting is it becomes more uh, philosophy after a while. And even like some of the popular science fiction shows get into this uh, when they're looking at it carefully. And it's, it's like, what is, uh, what is consciousness? You know, I I uh, I did a documentary series called Supernatural Investigator, mm-hmm. and then you start talking with physicists and and philosophers and uh, um, psychics and and people like this. Like, what what is consciousness? So so will will they become conscious? Um, maybe not in our version of consciousness, but there's all kinds of. This is where it gets weird. Like our are we in a different dimension when we're dreaming or is it just we're asleep? Uh, you know, these, these are like valid questions. Well, um, they're, they're philosophical questions for as long as they're kind of far off into the future, but they'll be very practical right. questions the closer they come to us. So let me give you an example. 
Right. For example, do you consider your eye to be a part of you, your artificial eye to be a part of you, or an addition of a sort? It's like a pair of glasses or a shirt. Because the question comes, say, when we replace... Where do we draw the line, right? If you replace one eye, you're still human. If you replace two eyes, then what happens? What happens if you replace two eyes and both of your hands? What happens right. if you also replace your legs? What about if you put an artificial heart? And finally, yeah. the biggest question is, of course, what about when we start actually replacing parts of the brain? So where do we draw the line? Yeah. Where do we lose our humanity and we become machines? Well... Exactly. I think it's, it's all about the brain and, and consciousness. I mean, um, there are already people with brain implants, yeah. thousands of them, yeah. for Parkinson's disease, for uh, right. epilepsy. But it's still, it's still adding on to their own fleshware CPU. In some cases, it's replacing yeah. specific parts and it's short-circuiting short them. Right. right. It's about the real question is could you like recreate or, or approximate consciousness? Um, sorry, somebody's calling you with a computer, and and what will that look like? You know, it might be a clone. Is a clone a computer? Um, I, <laughs> it's kind of like screwing with my head now when I think about it. I think one of the things that's happening, just to pull back a bit, mm -hmm. one of the things I talk about is when I'm doing my talks is why are – because when you talk about surveillance, for example, yeah. who, who is the person that is uh, eroding privacy the most? Or, or the, is, it, is it the state? Is it Google? Um, usually it's people themselves twittering I'm here, I'm there. Like even in the book 1984, the one thing Winston had was his diary of his thoughts. Yeah. But that, if Winston was around now, he'd be putting that diary on Facebook. For all to see. For all to see. So what is that, what is happening there? And, and I, do, I do think that there's, there's a movement towards, with this internet, and I remember when in university when somebody says, do you know what the internet is? And I said, no. <laughs> they said, check out this mail. It's an electronic mail. You can send it to another computer. And I was like, what? You know? But this, this internet, this, it's like a collective digital consciousness. We're all contributing to it. And I think in the same way that you want to have sex with somebody, uh, it's evolutionary psychology. Like you want, you're compelled to put as much of you into the world as possible. That's why you want to have sex. That's why we, you know, start rock bands and make camera eyes and, and do singularity things and stuff. We are compelled to push our seed out into the world. So let me get this right. You're putting a camera in your eye to, to, to get to laid? Get laid. Yeah. Well, you can make an argument that everything men do is to get laid. Like, you know, That's why did Napoleon try to take over Europe, you know, for, for uh, what, what was her name? Josephine? <laughs> Anyways, they, so I think that that evolutionary psychology is now moving into the realm of information. So when I have sex with somebody, I'm putting my semen and my speed, uh, 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 seed out there. But when I put stuff on Facebook, 
or I'm doing this interview, I'm putting my uh, information seed into the big pot um, of, of information that's out there that is becoming mm-hmm. a part of humanity. And I think that the internet and, and humanity are the internet just being all digital consciousness. Digital and the analog meeting together. Yeah. Like the internet is kind of like, it's this big giant collective consciousness that's slowly moving towards land. It's coming out of the sea. It's its own thing. I mean, it's, it's potentially Skynet, right? Mm-hmm. And I think they're, I'm not exactly sure what's going to happen, but I think there's a reason why human beings are pushing so hard with their information. They feel compelled that they, that I need to say, I just had lunch today on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Cause then me, I'm out there. It's, it's, it's almost sexual. Mm-hmm. So I'm not exactly, and a lot of people think, Oh, they just want to be Paris Hilton. But I think that's too easy. I think there's people have a legitimate need to contribute part of who they are into this new human partner that is the internet that's kind of all of us together. So what's next for what's next for uh, Rob Spence? Both the um, documentarian and the the person. Oddly, I have uh I'm talking to a friend in my small town about making tables out of barn wood. I think it's it's partially a reaction to all this. I've really kind of I didn't make this eye camera to become a cyborg. I just I'm a filmmaker with a hole in his head. But I've I've met all kinds of interesting people like yourself who are futurists and cyborgs and uh body modification people and uh film theorists, transhumanists, the transhumanists, uh augmented reality crowd. I I know them now for Terminator Vision. Um yeah. so That's great, um, but I've also, and you know, I'm I'm gonna, I've just made a weird camera. I'm gonna keep filming with it for the rest of my life. I'm quite pleased about that. But uh, yeah, just recently, I decided I wanted to take apart old barns and make tables. So maybe some kind of weird reaction to, to me becoming so uh, half robot, you know, like a pulling back from technology, maybe. <laughs> maybe I mean, I'm a I'm a video guy. So I deal with technology all day. It's it's kind of nice to get out there sometimes and just rip stuff apart with your hands, you know. <laughs> very very interesting. Yeah. Uh for those of our viewers who don't know much about you, what is the best place that they can go and look and find more information about you, maybe see your trailers? I mean, I'm definitely going to post one of them right under our interview, yeah. but what's the best source for you? Your website or Uh it's My website, yeah, it's iborgproject.com. And that's E-Y-E-B-O-R-G. iborgproject.com. Great. That's where I do all the stuff. Now, in the immediate future, uh, besides pulling apart barns to make tables, <laughs> we are making an iborg app. And the iborg app will do two things. One, it will simulcast my eye so that you can see the point of view of my eye on here. So you go in the iBorg app and you see what I'm seeing. And then wow. with that, uh, I'm using Ustream as a partner. I don't know if you know Ustream. Yeah, I've heard them. So for example, I could switch 
eye patch, so right now I'm blind. Mm-hmm. Now Ustream has a social stream that can connect with me, so people could Twitter or go through Facebook or whatever to tell me how to get around in the world. I see. And it compels them to get involved with me. That would be one application of that. The second part of the iBorg app is taking data from people I call surveillance nerds. So, for example, in Toronto here, we had the G20 not long ago. Absolutely, yeah. And they put up a lot of new cameras Mm -hmm. everywhere. So the surveillance nerds go to Google Maps and they tell everybody and work together to say, here's the locations of all the new uh, surveillance cameras. Mm-hmm. Now, what I'm hoping to do is harness people like that to give the second part of the iBorg app, the George Orwell aspect of the iBorg app. Beware um, of big brother kind of thing. Data, but also beware of little brother. So, in essence, what it'll do is it'll take Google Map data, and that'll be an augmented reality app. So, much like a Tim Hortons finder, when you turn on your iPhone, like, where's the closest Tim Hortons? Mm -hmm. A small Tim Hortons means there's one far away. That one, a big Tim Hortons logo means there's one close here. Take me there. So... Engage the surveillance community and also other communities to say, here are points of surveillance interests. Mm-hmm. So they might be surveillance cameras, or it might be that subway where there's a pervert who keeps doing upskirt videos, or it might be the uh, garage where the Google car sits, or it might be mm-hmm. Facebook headquarters, mm-hmm. or whatever. And instead of like a Tim Hortons logo, in the case of the Tim Hortons finder, my logo will be an animated George Orwell head, but who looks like a cyborg. And when you go, let's say you find, okay, it's G20. Oh, there's one of the surveillance cameras there. There'll be a floating George Orwell head that's part cyborg. You hit the George Orwell head, and you get more information about that particular point of interest, and the data is provided by the surveillance nerds. Mm Mm-hmm. Very interesting project. So let me bring our interview to a close with this question. If you have one message to give to our viewers and listeners today, what would you like it to be? Um, It's almost a cliche. You know, I can't tell you how many people told me that I shouldn't make a camera eye, that I couldn't make a camera eye. Um... It's really, uh, it's, it's been a lot of fun working with engineers. Um, I'm not an engineer, but uh, Time Magazine made us one of the best inventions of the year last year. <laughs> and so there's really, if you really want to do stuff, uh, you know, even if it seems like science fiction, and I know a lot of guys watching this are probably big nerds who want to do weird, fun things. It's, it's about inspiring people, having fun, uh, and just just going for it, like just, just doing it. Like Nike says, it's, it sounds really cliche and trite, but there is something to, to just going after what you want and it, it can actually happen. That's great. So, uh, let me finish our interview by saying thank you very much. Would you like to add anything else? Uh, resistance is futile. (laughs) 
<laughs> Are you serious or that's the humor coming up? No, it's again? not futile. No. Resistance is, is, is fine. Go ahead, resist. See what happens. Excellent. Yeah, I have noticed this this very nice tendency in all your videos to have like a lot of humor and a little bit of self-irony and uh, I sure. really appreciate that. So I think it, yeah. it gives a very nice, unique and even humanistic touch to your That's artwork right. videos. Well, this is the question. If Skynet does come, I hope it has a sense of humor. And well, maybe that's maybe that's our strongest weapon as human beings. Exactly. Maybe that's the if intelligence is not what differentiates us, then maybe sense yeah. of humor will remain to be. Yeah. So that's how we would you, know, you can just imagine like in the future trying to like, you know, have a nice conversation with a hyper intelligent computer and you make a joke and it, you know, just doesn't get it. <laughs> And it's like, well, you know, forget it. You know, I'll see you later. <laughs> well, Ray Kurzweil claims that emotional, that he calls that emotional intelligence and the ability to create music uh-huh. and to have sense of humor, to tell a joke. And he says that's our most advanced right. intelligence, actually, higher than, say, play chess right. and, and do math and solve math quiz, quizzes and stuff like right. that. So, well, right. we live in, in interesting times and... and uh, Let's see what happens. But I do hope, as you said, that we all have yep. a sense of humor. Oh, I know. And you know what? I'm going to end up with kids that are like going to take get an eye taken out and replaced. And I'll go, you're not allowed to do that. And they'll go, but dad, you did it. And I'll go, it was different when I did it. You know, <laughs> This is what's going to happen. Do you think they would listen? No, of course not. That's, that's as old as history. Children don't <laughs> listen to their parents. That's like, yeah. Yeah, and I personally even see the, 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 the option of people like Kevin Warwick, for example, replacing everything, right? Yeah. Not one eye because they lost it in an accident, uh-huh. but simply because they chose to upgrade their vision. Right. I see uh, pianists, uh, concert pianists getting cochlear implants just right. so that they can have a wider spectrum, musical yeah. spectrum that they can yeah. hear and cover and perform better. Uh, maybe right. I uh, mean, yeah. Getting that idea is out there. It's on like, their hands, as science, some science fiction show, like in Gattaca, yeah. the, the performing pianist had six fingers. <laughs> well, we're just we're just at that point now where it's beginning to be, especially for people who've lost part of their body. They're they're on the forefront of replacing stuff, but in in some cases, the idea is that well, you know, maybe we can augment. Mm-hmm. ourselves instead of just replacing things like substandard approximations mm-hmm. so that that idea is starting to to bubble for sure absolutely so there's many great topics for a potential second interview later huh? on where we can catch up and see how far along you have gone with either building tables or building your iphone mm. app right exactly so, once again, Rob, thank you very much for being a guest on Singularity One-on-One, and uh, good luck with all your projects. Thank you, sir.